1861, Abraham Lincoln appointed John W. Dawson as the third territorial governor of Utah. That ordinary decision would lead to a cascade of truly bizarre, unintended consequences, from Utah's first hashtag MeToo episode, to yet another gunfight involving Orrin Porter Rockwell, to the discovery of grave robbery, and, reportedly, a French ghost haunting the Great Salt Lake. On today's episode, we will explore the governor, the gunfight, and the ghost of the Great Salt Lake. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. Throughout the territorial years, the Mormons of Utah were desperate to become a state. Among other reasons, this was because they had no voice in who served as governor, the federal judges, the marshal, because all of these officers were chosen and appointed by the president in Washington, D.C., usually as a way of rewarding the party faithful with government jobs. Some of these federal officers who served in the territory were dedicated public servants, but others were simply scoundrels, and the Mormon people chafed at having such people in office. Now, while the Mormon people had no voice in federal appointments, they did have some territorial elections. They could vote for representatives in the legislative assembly. They could vote for probate court judges. They had city police, sheriffs, and the territorial militia, and sometimes the elected territorial officials, who overwhelmingly were Latter-day Saints, would flex in ways that, to say the least, bothered the federal appointees. For example, the Legislative Assembly gave the rank of Lieutenant General to the commander of the Nauvoo Legion, Daniel H. Wells. This rubbed the federal appointees the wrong way, since only two men had achieved the rank of three-star general up until then, George Washington and Ulysses S. Grant. The Assembly also passed laws declaring that abandoned or intestate property within the territory would be used for the Perpetual Emigration Fund. So, however unwillingly, the property of non-Mormons might ultimately be used to bring Latter-day Saint converts to the territory. But by far, the two biggest flashpoints between the federal office holders and the Latter-day Saints was the unique fusion of church and state in Utah society, including polygamy. Now, the Latter-day Saints openly practiced plural marriage during the years of the Utah Territory. They viewed it as a holy practice, a, a covenant relationship. But when it came to polygamy, the federal officers tended to view it with disgust. They thought it was a barbaric practice and a crime against federal law. Some of them openly raged against the Mormon people for their lustful, lascivious ways. The Mormons found this difficult to take, especially when it came from men who were little more than hedonists, reprobates, and libertines themselves. One such a man was John W. Dawson. A native of Indiana, he was appointed by Lincoln as the third territorial governor of Utah, and he arrived in Salt Lake City at the end of 1861. But within three weeks, he had not made a great impression. 
he began by calling on the Legislative Assembly to raise over $26,000 in taxes for the federal government. This request, met with gasps and wide eyes, was promptly denied, and Brigham Young declared the new governor to be a jackass. Second, the governor vetoed the new petition for statehood. But within three weeks, the governor suddenly decided to leave Utah and return to Indiana and Washington, D.C. On the 31st of December, 1861, he hired Wood Reynolds to drive him to Mountain Dell Station, about 12 miles outside the city. From there, he would begin his journey home. What happened exactly? Why the sudden departure? Well, on January 1st, 1862, the Deseret News ran an article reporting on the governor's flight from the city. With some relish, the Deseret News speculated not only that the governor might have gone insane, but offered a speculative list of reasons as to why the governor may have lost his mind. Some were of the opinion that it was hereditary. Others believed that his journey across the plains and the incidents thereof had uh, affected his brain. There were some who thought the labor of producing such a lengthy and profound message as the one he had read to the Legislative Assembly had been too much for his feeble mind. Others say the atmosphere in this high altitude had produced unexpected results upon the Hoosier. But the reason for his flight became apparent when Mrs. Albina Williams came forward and swore out an affidavit about the governor's conduct towards her. Albina Williams was the recent widow of Thomas Williams. Thomas Williams had been a veteran of the Mormon battalion. After the campaign he had settled in Salt Lake City, he had opened up a general store and became prosperous. But he fell out with church leaders and he ultimately left the church. Then, in 1860, while on business outside San Bernardino, California, his small party was attacked by Indians, and he was killed. This left Albina in difficult circumstances. Her husband had left her very little by way of liquid assets, and she found herself under the need to take in sewing to support her large family. But Albina Williams herself was very tough, and she had too marched with the Mormon battalion in its campaign during the Mexican War. In her affidavit, she described how the governor had knocked on her door. When she opened it, here is what happened. The governor walked in directly past me, set his hat on a stand, hung his cane on the mantel shelf, and seated himself on a chair. I stood in the opposite corner from the governor. He said, Mrs. Williams, are you alone? I told him, no, my family were with me. He says, have you a father or brothers here? I told him I had no brother here, but my father lived in the north end of the city. He says, huh, you Mormons I like pretty well, but the men keep their women entirely no. too close. My informant tells me you are a widow, proud, reserved, and cold. I thought I would come down and see if I could not thaw you out. Then... Without any ceremony, he made what in the parlance of the time was called an indecent proposal. Now, in Pioneer, Utah, this was considered a terrible insult, not only to Albina, but to her entire family. 
Albina Williams reacted by picking up a coal shovel near the fireplace and threatening to give the governor a thrashing he would never forget. Quote, I told him to leave this house, taking the fire shovel in my hand, telling him if he did not leave the house, I would use this shovel about him or over his head. The governor muttered something about hoping that they could leave as friends and quickly left the house. And a few days later, the governor was beating a hasty retreat from the city. Now, in making his improper advance on Albina Williams, the governor had asked her about a father and brothers, but he didn't ask about nephews. And as it turned out, she did have nephews. And in an unfortunate turn of events for the governor, one such nephew was Wood Reynolds, the man driving him on the coach. After arriving at the Mountaindale station, Wood Reynolds and a small group of others, Moroni Clausen, Lot Huntington, John Smith, Jason Luce, decided that they would teach the governor a lesson. After assembling, they burst into the Mountaindale station and beat the governor severely, almost within an inch of his life. For good measure, they stole his buffalo robe. After coming to his senses some time later, the governor scratched out a hasty note to Abraham Lincoln. January 3rd, 1862, Fort Bridger, Utah Territory. Leaving Great Salt Lake City on the 31st en route for home in Washington City, I was followed by a band of Danites and 12 miles out, wantonly assaulted and beaten. The whole purpose of this people is to gain admission into the Union on an equal basis, and then the ulcer, polygamy, will have a sovereign protection which, while no other state nor the federal government can control, will be infecting every part of the contagious territory, ultimately to result in disasters which no man can now conjecture. It must not be admitted till the foul ulcer is cured from a predominance of Gentile population or by federal bayonets. And the sooner the federal government is awake to these alternatives, the better. He adamantly denied the charge of any improper misconduct. In Washington, D.C., this episode caused no small stir. Abraham Lincoln met with church agent John Bernheisel, who gave him the affidavit of Mrs. Williams. After perusing the affidavit, Lincoln had a conversation with John Bernheisel about what had happened to the unfortunate governor. In a letter written to Brigham Young, Bernheisel described the conversation. Lincoln confessed, quote, I have no recollection how I came to make that appointment. I've been trying to recollect, but I have less recollection about it than any other important appointment I have made. Bernheisel said, I then told him I supposed that some of Mrs. Williams' friends or relatives had pursued him and overtaken him about 12 miles from the city and committed the violence upon his person to avenge the insult he had offered her. The president replied, I suppose so too. He then said he did not know how he came to make it and repeated the history of the transgression of our first parents, saying that Adam rolled the blame of it on Eve and upon the devil, and that he must roll this appointment upon the devil as well. 
But if the devil was responsible for appointing John Dawson as governor of Utah, I'm afraid he wasn't yet done with his mischief. And on our next episode, we will continue the story of the governor, the gunfight, the grave robber, and the ghost of the Great Salt Lake. I'm your host, Nate Olson, and thank you for joining us on this episode of Adventures in Mormon History.